you're listening to the Business of Branding podcast. If you are a creative female entrepreneur ready to connect with more of those heck yes clients, build an irresistible brand, and allow growing your business to feel easier than ever before, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Nikki Arnsman, a brand designer and strategist, a mama, and a little bit of a serial entrepreneur. On this podcast, I share all the strategies, tips, and lessons learned that have helped me build and scale an aligned business. My hope is that the content here will inspire you to go out and do the same for yourself. Welcome to another episode of the Business of Branding podcast. I was chatting with my dear friend Stephanie uh, from Entrepreneistas a couple of weeks ago, and she said to me, you have got to meet Cindy Gallup. She's so incredible, so amazing. Um, and so we have Cindy here today. She's a brand and business innovator, consultant, coach, keynote speaker. Um, for anyone who wants to change the game in their particular sector, she's the go-to for anything radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative, um, and like in her own words, does not do the status quo. Um, And if you want to own the future as the leader you want to be, the business that you want to be, have a gender equal, diverse, inclusive community, um, she's the one to go to, connect to, learn from. So Cindy, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you, Nikki. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes. Um, so can you give us a little bit more? I, I know you were in the marketing industry for 30 plus years. Give us a little bit of your um, brand story. Like what got you here? What's your background? I, I, we'd love some insight on that. Sure. So um, as you say, Nikki, my background is 35 years working in brand building, marketing and advertising. Um, 16 of those for the same agency, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, the global creative agency, whom I worked for in London, Singapore and New York. And the reason I'm here in New York today is because I moved here 23 years ago to open up the American office for BBH, Mm. which began as me in a room with a phone, starting an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace. Um, and you know, as a really, female, um, yep, absolutely. And you know, really, I would say that everything in my life and career has happened by accident. I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a great believer in my ex boss at BBH, John Hegarty's mantra, because John says, "Do interesting things, and interesting things will happen to you." And so that's been pretty much my life and career path: doing interesting things, and therefore having interesting things happen to me. I love that so much. Um, Do interesting things and interesting things will happen. So when you were in the advertising space and um, you were opening up this new office, how did that journey go? Did you stay in that for a long time? Did you, at what point were you like, okay, I'm segueing my, like out of here or what took you, what was the next thing that you got into? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, in terms of how the journey went, um, you know, and I say this because I think it's important for our listeners, um, whom, as you've said, um, feature many entrepreneurs themselves know. So, you know, um, as I said, literally, um, BBH New York began as me in a room with a phone, building up a very small team around me. And what I said to my team from the get-go was, 
we are going to be the best advertising agency in America. Mm. And I said to my team, which, you know, the first time I said this, there were probably like six of us, okay? And I said, if the big storied agencies, J. Walter Thompson, McCann Erickson, Young and Rubicum, if they could hear me say that, they would roll around on the floor in hysterics, killing themselves laughing. Mm -hmm. But the key thing is that you should always have a big vision and a big goal. And when you know that your goal is to be the best advertising agency in America, you can then measure every single thing you do by asking yourself the question, does this take us one step closer to being the best advertising agents in America? Mm -hmm. And so that's why everybody should have a big vision, a big goal, because that is how you evaluate what you're doing and how well you're progressing. And by the way, I emphasize the word you in that sentence because all that matters is how you feel you're doing. What anybody else thinks doesn't matter. Do not set store in outside observers, media coverage. All that ever matters is that you know that you are progressing step by step towards your goal. So um, that was um, the goal um, for many years. Um, and so I ran the agency for um, a number of years. Um, and in fact, we made very good progress because um, four years in, um, Adweek um, awarded us their agency of the year um, for the um, Northeast, um, which was the very first time that, um, you know, a, a startup agency had won that so early on in its career. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, we did pretty well on that. Of course, naturally, yeah. that would have happened. You know. <laughs> well, who knows, but, but we were pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I ran the agency very happily until in 2005, I turned 45. And I had, I had my very own personal midlife crisis um, mm -hmm. in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. <laughs> but um, in the couple of years running up to it, I'd always thought on one's 45th birthday is the moment when we should pause, take stock, reflection, review, where have I been, where am I going? So I duly did that on February 1, 2005, and that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. You know, wonderful agency, I love BBH to death. You know, I cannot say enough nice things about them, but I went, I think it might be time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued, and eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, OK, guys, here I am. What do you got? Mm. And just see what comes. And so I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York without a job to go to in the summer of 2005. And it was the best thing I ever did with my life. Because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Agreed. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those are the large corporate entity who at the, at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, 
i.e. you. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I oftentimes get um, people come to me and they say, I want to get out of my nine to five. I want to get out of this. <clears throat> and this is even like pre the last two years of, of people really being jolted into, oh shit, like uh, my job that I thought was secure is not secure and no one cares about me. So I have to figure out what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> and they say, I, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do. And I'm always thinking, what do people want of you? What do your friends come to you wanting support with? What is it the thing that people are always asking, coming to you and asking you about that maybe you don't even realize is, is them like reaching out a hand to something that they trust you for and know you for and can count on you for. And it seems like from what you said, you had such a great self-awareness of how can I, you, you did that. You essentially released yourself of other responsibilities that you had and said, show me what you've got right? Like, what do you, what can you use me for? What do you need me for? How can I support you? Um, and how did that go for you? Sure. And, you know, what I would just say, Nikki, is, you know, obviously, in my case, I was fortunate because I had a very high profile in the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was lucky enough that when um, news broke that I was on the market, a ton of things came to me, sure. most of which I've never thought of myself. And by the way, what that meant was that, you know, I went, okay, you know, I'm looking at, at all of these different things I could do. I still don't know what I want to do. I'm going to be employment slut. I'm going to talk to everybody. Mm. I'm going to take every phone call, do every meeting, no preconceived notions. I'm not going to rule anything out. And so I went on this fascinating exploratory, which was as good for telling me what I didn't want to do as what I did want to do. Because I would come out of an interview, a meeting, and I would go, okay, so now I know in 50 million years, no more does that. <laughs> right. And, um, but what I would say to our listeners is, you know, there are many different ways in which you can find out what you really want to do. And, mm -hmm. and one thing I recommend, um, and I especially recommend it because I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners will be young women mm -hmm. um, relatively early on in their careers. So um, many years ago, I was speaking at the Cannes Advertising Festival and in the Q&A session, a young woman in the audience put her hand up and she said to me, Cindy, what is the single piece of advice that you would give a young person going into advertising today? And I said, don't. <laughs> and then I said, let me explain what I mean by that. Don't go into advertising to go into advertising. Go into advertising to make what you want to happen, happen. So mm -hmm. I said to her, absolutely, you know, take a job offer in advertising. You know, and by the way, people who want to get into advertising, I, I do say, take the first job you're offered. You know, I did. You don't have to work at a specific agency. The moment you've got a foot in the door in advertising experience, it becomes a lot easier to then move to the kind of agency you want to work out after that. But the key thing is, I said, you know, absolutely get a job in our industry and then take a long, hard look around you at the industry and identify what you think is missing. Identify what you think should be there that isn't. 
identify what you would love to have in the industry that nobody else seems to be bringing to the table, identify what you know you could do that nobody else is, and then do that. You know, and by the way, you can do that either by proposing it at the agency you work for or jumping ship to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. I do recommend the latter because when you identify with the benefit of your freshness and objectivity of perspective as a young person in the industry, when you identify what is missing and you fill that gap, all you have to do is run that business successfully for a couple of years and then giant holding company X will buy it from you for an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. (laughs) That is the quickest path to wealth creation in any industry. Yeah. I love that. There's a couple things I want to unpack there. (laughs) One is the idea that just because you can do something, that's very different than your want and what you want to do. Um, I think, I think specifically young entrepreneurs, um, and I know even like for myself, um, like. I feel like I grew up in in a time when there was so much readily available to be able to learn how to do so many different things. Right. And I, my background is in the, is, is in the graphic uh, space. So I was in textile design and pattern design and then graphic and web design. I've always just kind of been in this, like floating around in this um, design space. And, um, you know, I can do a lot of things. Like I'm really savvy with the computer, with marketing, with um, learning, like, you know, someone can come on, come into the internet and learn how to run a multi seven figure successful ad agency on their own, you know, and do it on their own. And that's like the beauty. But the downside of that is falling into the trap of I can do it all, right? And and then all of a sudden you realize, you know, five, 10, however many years, 16 years down the line, whatever it is, um, like, I don't fucking like what I'm doing. And this, like, and even though I can do all of these things, it's not what I actually want to be doing. So I love the idea of like, shortcutting that process in some way um, where you do start to take inventory and look around earlier than later at what would actually bring me joy to see changed or to see better um, in whatever industry sector that you're in. And and actually, Nikki, there's another exercise I recommend um, for people who are, you know, not sure what they want to do. So basically, um, what I say to people is, um, first of all, write down a list of every single thing you do in your current job, okay? And then identify from that list the things that you most love doing, okay? And the interesting thing, by the way, when you conduct this exercise, that quite often the things you most love doing in your job are not necessarily numbers one, two, and three on your job spec. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be something that ostensibly has nothing to do with your actual role, but it's something that that you you find yourself doing as part of it that you enormously enjoy. So make that list, be ruthless, you know, strike from the list everything you hate doing, and just focus in on the things you absolutely love doing about what you're doing currently, okay? So you identify the things that you really love doing, 
And then the second part of this exercise is identify the conditions under which you most love doing them. So you might go, so I really love doing these things, but I especially love them when I only do them from this one location. Mm. I really love them when I only do them between these hours. I really love them when I do them only working with these kinds of people, these kinds of clients. And then design an opportunity, a job, a venture around those two things. Because then you are always doing the things you most love doing in the circumstances in which you most love doing them. Amen. I love that. I love that so much. Um, And I love that process that you shared as well. One, what I'm curious about is when you were kind of, you know, going to all these meetings and in your own capacity, figuring out what you, you know, wanted to be doing, um, how did you figure out like, how did you not make the wrong decision? Like, how did you not end up working with a bunch of a-holes that you didn't want to be working with? Like, what was, was there any sort of like discernment other than, you know, maybe it was just like gut instinct? Oh, well, um, the a-holes were very quick to spot. Yeah. So that was when I went, no, no, not doing that, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, what? Uh, so when I left BBH, my presumption was that I would take another job. You know, I just didn't know what that job would be. So I began working um, as a consultant um, uh, to support myself while I was doing all these meetings and so on. And I just really enjoyed um, doing that and being my own boss. And... I especially enjoyed it because um, I remember this moment of revelation when, so, so I had always in my advertising career done a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. And so when I left BBH in the summer of 2005, you know, I had, um, you know, speaking gigs that I committed to coming up that fall. I, and I remember this moment of revelation because I had um, agreed to speak at um, a conference in, in LA. I think it was a digital media conference. And I sat down to craft my presentation, my talk. And I suddenly realized that I could go out on that stage and I could say whatever the hell I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I make that point, Nikki, because um, as I said previously, as the CEO of BBH New York, you know, I did a lot of speaking, but when I spoke, I had to follow the agency's agenda. I had to make sure I didn't say anything that would piss our clients off. You know, and now there was this moment of revelation where I went, I can go out on that stage and I can talk about my own theories of digital media, what I believe the future is, and I can say whatever the hell I want without worrying about what anybody else thinks of it. And so that, that was a real moment of freedom and liberation. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I bring that up because it is when we can be ourselves and say what we think that other people are unable to respond to that and that is how we get the kind of opportunities we want. And, um, and, and, you know, as I said, I began working as a consultant and anybody who follows me on social media will have seen, you know, my LinkedIn bio, my Twitter bio, um, they're all the same, um, the same line. How that line came about was I was in a meeting early on um, talking to some potential consultancy clients about my approach. And, you know, as you've said, what I always explain is that you know, I consult very selectively, only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So, 
you know, I, I don't do status quo. I'm all about groundbreaking transformative, you know, and, and I sum this up in the meeting spontaneously by saying, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. And everybody in the meeting laughed. And I left the meeting, I thought, actually, that's a really good way of summing up what I do. Mm-hmm. So I adopted that as my LinkedIn bio, my Twitter bio, you know, to, as the shorthand um, for what I do. But um, I adopted it not just as a bit of fun, a bit of creativity, a bit, a bit of whimsy. I use that line very deliberately because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. When I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do. It repels the ones who don't. Mm-hmm. And I want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort, and money. So when you identify what you stand for, what you're all about, and when you put it out there, you will absolutely draw to you the people who go, wow, I want some of that. And you will keep away the ones who don't. And you want to keep away the ones who don't. Mm-hmm. So good. You know, this makes me think of <clears throat> when people are uh, crafting that one-liner, right? Or that thing that's going to help them understand. And it, it helps, it does bring clarity, I think for you, like for, you know, you as the business owner and, and as like you're the leader of what you're creating. But I think more importantly, what it does is when somebody, um, connects with your Twitter or your LinkedIn or your Instagram or whatever it is, they're immediately like, she is for me. I want what this woman is up to and what she is working on. Um, and you want that to, you want that to stand out. You want that to be something that some people are like, mm, no, not for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, it is a waste of time Ooh. and which ends up then becoming a waste of money. Ooh. Um, So I couldn't agree more. And I just love that so much. Um, So you have another, your startup, which, what are you, what is your work right now? Like, what are you doing right now? Have you, are you still consulting? I know you're speaking, like, what is, what is that all about at the moment? So, um, so my focus, my absolute priority is on my startup, Make Love Not Poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but because um, I battle huge challenges as the founder of a sex tech startup, mm-hmm. um, I have not yet been able to raise the kind of funding that means that I can pay myself out of Make Love Not Porn so I don't have to do anything else. I can just focus on my startup. So unfortunately, I do have to support myself alongside Make Love Not Porn. And so I continue to work as a consultant and as a paid public speaker um, in, in order to pay the bills while working very hard to build my startup and to raise the kind of funding I need, as I say, to not have to do you know, work on the side, but be able to focus fully on that. Yeah. So if we've got any angel investors listening in who aren't, oh my God, ship them in. Yes, come on. So tell us about Make Love Not Porn. Sure. So, you know, as I said earlier, you know, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. Mm -hmm. And Make Love Not Porn is a total accident. So it came out of my direct personal experience dating younger men. Um, and, and, and again, I should just contextualize for our audience. I am somebody who has never wanted to be married. I've never wanted children. Very glad I was a new, I always knew that as opposed to finding out the hard way by having them. Mm-hmm. Um, I adore being single. I cannot wait to die alone. And I date younger men casually and recreationally for sex. And I am deliberately very public about all of that because 
we don't have enough role models for women and by the way for men as well that demonstrate you can live your life very differently from the way that you're expected to and still be very happy mm -hmm. so there i was dating younger men 13 14 years ago and the men i date tend to be in their 20s and i began realizing that I was encountering an issue that would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it very intimately and personally. I realized I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence, Nikki, because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two things converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, okay. if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 13, 14 years ago, nobody was talking about this. No one was writing about it. Mm -hmm. This was me in isolation as a naturally action-oriented person going, I want to do something about this. So 12 years ago, I put up on no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original version uh, was just words. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what really happens in the real world. I launched at the TED conference in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words come on my face on the TED stage six <laughs> times. The talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people wrote to me from every country in the world, young and old, men and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out, and I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so that was the point at which I felt, oh my God, I now have a personal responsibility. I have to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that will make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. But I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, 12 years ago at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I would have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream, and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So thinking big right from the get-go. Which is your MO, right? We're going yeah, back to yeah. the market, right? It's like, yeah, no, 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 exactly. have, have a big vision, Nikki, absolutely, have a big goal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was, I always emphasize to people that make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. Mm -hmm. If we did, amongst many other benefits, people would then be able to bring a real world mindset when they view what is simply performative produced entertainment. Mm -hmm. So our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Mm -hmm. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. Mm -hmm. And so given that mission, I decided very simply to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area 
no other social network or platform will allow in order to socialize sex and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So nine years ago, my tiny team and I launched the first stage of this vision, which is makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real world sex. Mm. So anybody from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real world sex, but we're very clear what we mean by this. We are not porn. We are not amateur. We are building a whole new category on the internet that has never existed before, social sex. Mm -hmm. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather it would be if they allowed you to socially right. sexually self-express, which right. sadly they don't. And so social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are not about performing for the camera. They're just about doing what we all already do on every other social platform in every other area of life, which is capture what goes on in the real world as it happens spontaneously in all its funny, messy, wonderful, comical, awkward, hilarious, fabulous humanness. We curate to make sure of that. I designed Make Love Not Porn around what everybody else should have. Nobody else did human curation. There's no self-publishing. Our curators watch every video submitted from beginning to end before we approve it and publish it. And we have a revenue sharing business model, which I designed to democratize access to income. Our members pay to subscribe, rent and stream social sex videos. Half the income goes to our contributors whom we call our Make Love Not Porn Stars. I love it. This <coughs> is so good. So this all began nine years ago was when you launched the original I launched makelovenotporn.com 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. Then I turned into a business and launched .tv nine years ago. Mm -hmm. What's going on with it today? So <coughs> I, I should just explain again for our audience's benefit, that the one thing I didn't realize when I embarked on this venture was that I would fight an enormous battle every single day to build it. Mm. Basically because every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup takes for granted. I can't, the small print always says no adult content. And so that pervades every aspect of the business. I can't get funded, I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account, make love, not porn. Our biggest challenge is payments. PayPal won't work with adult content, Stripe can't. Oh. Every tech service you want to use, the terms of service always say no adult content. The biggest thing we have to celebrate and make love, not porn therefore is that we're still here. In a world where the tech and financial world has been trying to shut us down since day one. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we're alive. Hallelujah, you know, um, and every day our members write to us and thank us for changing their lives through sex. Um, because, you know, um, and by the way, it's very ironic, Nikki, that we struggle to raise funding and get business support because ultimately Make Love Not Porn's mission is to end rape culture. And we do that by doing something incredibly simple, but nevertheless, nobody else is doing. We end rape culture by showing you how wonderful great consensual communicative sex is in the real world. Mm -hmm. Our social sex videos role model good sexual values and good sexual behavior. And we make all of that aspirational versus what you see in porn and popular culture. You know, one young man, 23 year old wrote to us and said, 
your sight makes me want to have sex in a more grown-up, honest, and respectful way. That's what we do. So um, where we're at is, I'm about this fall to set out to raise a round of serious funding for Make Love Not Porn. I feel more optimistic about my ability to do that than ever before, because 12 years ago, I was the very first person ever to stand on a stage and publicly identify that porn was becoming sex education by default. Today, you can't turn around with, without falling over another media piece going, oh my God, kids learning about sex and porn. So today, everybody knows why we exist. I'm finding more investor interest than ever before. And so um, I'm setting out to raise funding to be able to scale Make Love Not Porn to be the Facebook of social sex. That's scale what to operate at. And also to build a number of products I've had in the pipeline for years that I've not been able to build because I haven't got the funding. So parents and teachers have been asking us for years for a more formal sex education arm of Make Love Not Porn. So I want to build out makelovenotporn.academy, bought the URL, we have a holding page there at the moment. Um, And that would be on the same principles as makelovenotporn.tv, crowdsourced curated revenue share. You know, any sex educator in the world can submit their own materials to us. Mm -hmm. You know, we will publish segmented by age appropriateness. If you're a parent going, oh my God, my six-year-old just asked about this, what do I say? Here's where you go for age-appropriate tools and content, you know. Because um, where do you and, go right now? Like, the, obviously so, what we were taught in school was bullshit, right? Like none of uh, that. No, no. So, so, so you can't look for that in schools. And I have a ton of friends who are brilliant sex educators, but they face all the same barriers I do. Mm-hmm. And so I want to aggregate all of that amazing work into a hub where we can promote yeah. it for them. Love we it. will revenue share, you know, to, um, 50-50 split as we do with our Make Love Not Porn Stars, because right now nobody goes into sex education to make money. I have friends or brilliant sex educators that they can't even make a living doing this because of all the obstacles. They've had to take other jobs to survive. Mm-hmm. I want to change that. This is enormously valuable work. Yeah. I, I just get a taste of this sometimes because I'm in the digital marketing space um, with, you know, a, a hundreds of other service providers who've got digital products and assets and all this stuff. And when they go to try and run paid ads to anything, they're always having to change things and, you know, kind of like skirt tail around what it is that they actually do because they can't get copy and messaging approved. They can't get certain words approved and everything just gets denied, denied, denied. And and by the way, Nikki, um, our audience should know that what we're talking about here is massively gendered Mm -hmm. because um, you're absolutely right. You know, um, another thing inhibiting our growth at Make Love Not Porn is that we are banned from advertising. We can't advertise on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit. I mean, Reddit, I ask you, by the way. Um, And we can't advertise on traditional media either. You know, we can't advertise on the New York subway, on billboards. Um, And this is not just us as a sex tech venture. Any female-led sexual health and wellness ventures cannot advertise. Mm -hmm. You know, menstruation ventures can't advertise on Facebook. Menopause ventures can't advertise. Fertility ventures can't advertise. However, Male sexual health and wellness, it's a whole different story. Erectile dysfunction ads, right. come on in. It's utterly gendered, it's utterly biased, and it's sexist as hell. Yeah. You know, I've never really dove into this um, topic before, right now. And uh, I'm a mom, I have a daughter who's four and, you know, is just kind of getting into... Um, you know, I even think about like her, like when she was young, 
younger and you know kids when they're really little kind of just like go through this phase of like learning their body and figuring out like who they are and I remember like wondering to myself like is this normal or like how do I make sure that like I'm guiding her to be like not feeling like she can't figure out her own body right or like that that's normal yeah. and okay. Like, I don't want, I don't ever want my daughter to grow up feeling like she can't masturbate or she can't do this. Um, no, uh, no, exactly. So, so here are the two pieces of advice that I have to give to parents all the time, Vicky. And when I can build Make Love Not Porn Academy, all the resources <laughs> will, will be there. Fingers crossed I raise that funding. So, so the first thing I say to parents today is you cannot begin talking to your child about sex too early. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I don't mean literally talk about sex. What I mean is, to your point, the very first time your child asks where babies come from, touches their genitals, the most important thing isn't even what you say as much as how you say it. Mm-hmm. Never ever get visibly flustered or embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Never get angry because of that. You know, never, never shut them up, never change the, the, the conversational topic, never leave the room. Instead, answer them completely straightforwardly, honestly, matter-of-factly. And the moment you do that, you open up a channel of communication that will always be there for them as they grow older. That is really, really necessary. And then the second thing I say to parents is today, when you talk to your child about sex, no matter how early, you must now also talk to your child about porn. Mm. And this is a lot easier to do than most parents think. Because all you have to do is a version of what I'm about to tell you, and you just dial it up or down depending on the age of the child. So you say to your child, so darling, you know, we've just talked about sex. And you know how together we watch movies and videos and cartoons where things happen that aren't real. Well, there are also movies and videos about sex, and they're not real either. And because of that, they can be quite confusing. And so we'd rather you didn't watch until you're older. But if anybody ever shows you something like that, or you stumble across it, come and talk to us, we can explain it. And that's all you have to say. But by saying that, you've done two very important things. The first is that you have set up in your child's mind when they stumble across porn as they will, that it's not real. And the second thing is you have encouraged them to come and talk to you about it. And you will absolutely want them to do that because the kind of porn they like to stumble upon can be utterly traumatizing for a child. Yeah. Yeah. It takes something uh, that can feel scary, fear-driven, like confusing, you know, as a parent, as a human, you know, as a female, whatever it is, as a male, um, and turns it into like an empowering situation and an educational situation Mm. instead of like the other. And so I think what you're doing is amazing and incredible. And um, I pray and hope that you get the funding that you're looking for. um, And we'll definitely be rooting you on along the way. Thank you so much, Nikki. Yeah. Um, So is there any last little bit that you'd like to leave um, this audience with, whether pertaining to, um, I feel like we've talked many things here, but it's been so good and so eye-opening on part of, part of our discussion really feels like you are so big on, on having that big vision um, and on figuring out as quickly as you can, um, how to 
how to get bigger and to get louder and to get seen and to show up um, and to figure out what you want to do and what brings you joy. And everything that you shared, as I hear about make love, not porn, I feel like, yeah, your life perfectly equipped you and set you up to be the person to steward this mission that feels really difficult and hard. Um, and I feel, um, comforted that you're like the woman in charge of that, <laughs> you know, to like, oh, thank you. yeah, that is like the go-to for, um, for this really, what could be, um, really transformational for generations to come. Um, so yeah, if there's any last little bit of anything you'd like to leave them with, I want to open that up to you. Thank you. Well, I think what I'd say to our listeners is, if, if you've liked what I said, please do support my startup. Go to makelovenotporn.tv, sign up, subscribe. Subscriptions start at $10 a month. It's very affordable. Consider becoming a Make Love Not Porn star. Mm-hmm. You know, our Make Love Not Porn stars, most of them have never filmed themselves doing anything sexual before ever. They're doing it for us because they believe in our social mission. And they find that socially sharing their real world sex is transformative for them mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to love themselves more, to enhance their sexual sense of self, their sexual self-esteem. It improves couples' relationships. And also please do follow at Make Love Not Porn on Instagram um, and on, on Twitter at Make Love Not Porn again. And I'm at Sydney Gallup on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Facebook as well. And as you said earlier, Nikki, if anybody knows any investors, it's Cindy at makelovenotporn.com. Yes, totally. We will link up um, makelovenotporn.com.tv. We will link up all of your social channels so everyone can easily get in touch with you. Cindy, thank you so much for being here. Um, I've loved this conversation so much. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. It's been a pleasure.